The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. These last pair of words really form a tight paragraph that we could take the next six years to study, but we certainly need to take them all at one shot because they work together to understand the disciples' thinking, which so parallels ours, and the Lord's care, which we still enjoy. John chapter 16, follow along as I begin reading in verse 25. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that it that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that You know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because my Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. When I was in the 10th grade, I had an assignment to read J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. I have to confess something to you. Up until that point, largely my literature journey throughout junior high and the first year of high school was through Cliff's Notes. You know Mr. Cliff, don't you? The black and white little summaries, and uh, I even thought those were long. Something happened to me, though, when I read The Hobbit that had never happened before. I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to give this an honest shot. And I opened up the first page, and I read, and I thought, that's not bad. got to the second and third page, this is even better. Couldn't stop. Absolutely couldn't stop. Just didn't put it down. It was the, the first time I ever experienced what people said as a page-turner, or you couldn't put the book down. I remember getting in my bed, and supposed to be in bed, and having a flashlight under the cover reading The Hobbit. Well, I finished it early. It was the first assignment I think I ever, and ever, finished early. Just couldn't finish the book. And I remember getting toward the end of the book, looking at maybe 10 pages left, and slowing down. Because I didn't want it to be over. Like a good meal, you're looking at the last bite. You just don't want it to end. Well, I finished the book, and it was on a Friday, I remember, and had the whole weekend, and came back to class with Mrs. Copeland on Monday morning. And I got to admit, I was pretty depressed. I mean, I thought, this is the greatest book ever written in the history of language. And, you know, Bilbo won, and the dragon's dead, and if you don't know that, then just forget that. 
But I was so down that it was over. Told Mrs. Copeland, who saw for the first time little Ricky Holland excited about literature. And I said, Mrs. Copeland, I, it's over. I, I don't even want to read. You know, we've got to read The Lord of the Flies next. That can't be good. So what, what, what is this? I'm just... And I was really down, and she said, Ricky, and she pulled me over the corner and she said, there's three more books. <laughs> and I remember having this exuberation that it wasn't over and there was more to enjoy. That weekend was a long weekend for me because I really thought I'll never enjoy another book like I just enjoyed that one book. Well, that is in a very minute, extremely minimal way, something that's about to happen to the disciples. They're coming up to the end of their three-year journey with Jesus. And he's basically said, all that this has come to is this, I'm leaving. He's told them over and over he was coming back. He's told them over and over he would die. He's told them over and over he would rise from the dead. All they heard was, he's leaving. They didn't see the end of the story. They didn't have a concept. They didn't have a category to put a resurrected Savior from the dead. And if you think it's bad now at the end of chapter 16... Just wait a few hours when Zechariah's prophecy will be fulfilled and the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. Jesus predicts that himself. At the heart of this entire corpus, this, this, this discourse that Jesus gives, beginning in the upper room, moving through the streets of Jerusalem, down that eastern bank of the, Mount of, uh, of the Temple Mount, moving toward the Mount of Olives, in the bottom of the Kidron Valley, in that discourse, in that journey, Jesus tells the disciples the most important instruction on his heart as the last words he'll speak to them before his death. Now, one would think, well, if Jesus knows he's going to rise from the dead, why wouldn't he tell them all the whole story? And the answer is, he did. And they didn't get it. What's he going to say to them last? They get some things, they don't get a lot of things, they get parts of it, they don't get the whole. What will he possibly say to them last? And what he says to them last is so important for you and for me. Remember, this whole dialogue is Jesus getting the disciples ready to live life with him in a spiritual sense, without him in a physical sense. What is it life to like to live life with an invisible Savior? And the instruction he gives them about how they'll live without his physical presence so instructs our own hearts because that's where we are. We are living life with an invisible Savior as well. Well, the last lap of, instruction, of his instruction is, is exactly what they need, and it's about peace. Look at the very last um, sentence, uh, the last verse, verse 33. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace because in the world... You will have the opposite. You'll have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. The disciples' world and our world have very strong parallels. The world is a place of tribulation, perplexities, problems, difficulties, pain, heartache. And that's before you add the layer of possible persecution for our faith. It's like one high school book trying to deal with the sovereignty of God in students' lives is titled... If God is there, why can't I get my locker open? 
whether you're the smallest child figuring out why life doesn't work out the way you want, or in the last lap of your life wondering why cancer cells exist. Everyone is looking for peace, to be settled, to have the power of perspective that rises above the immediate and gives us instructions. It's not the first time Jesus has raised this issue with his men. Look at verse, chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Don't be troubled, guys. You can have peace. Look down at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. That's interesting. The fear and the lack of peace go together. Anytime someone is fearful, they have a lack of peace. And anytime there's a lack of peace, you have to find out what are you afraid is going to happen. What is really threatening your stability in the Savior? What is really threatening your grip of the gospel? Jesus over and over says, peace is directly proportionate to your understanding of worship of me. How do you find that peace? How do you generate peace when things go south? What happens when your world crashes? What happens when your expectations tumble? What happens when the things that you think should be aren't? And the things that you think shouldn't be are. What do you do when you're attacked, vilified, maligned, persecuted, gossiped against, accused when you suffer loss, pain, heartache? Well, I've often talked about how books don't change your life. Paragraphs do. And again, you have to read the whole book to find which paragraph is going to affect your life. And unfortunately, it's not the same paragraph for everybody. I don't know if you've ever heard someone read something, this changed my life, and you read it and go, well, that's really interesting. Good for you. Or shared something that you've read in a book, and said, this is overwhelmingly powerful, and they go, well, good for you. Well, I hope you don't say that after this. This is one of those paragraphs that rocked my world. Morris Roberts is the editor of the Banner of Truth magazine. It's a solid magazine that's been faithful to the gospel for five decades. In a book, The Thought of God, which is a collection of some of the essays he's done over the last few, um, few decades, uh, it's put together as just a profound little set of articles he wrote. This is one of those paragraphs that reworked the thinking in the inner recesses of my own struggle and search for peace and stability. He says this, The thought of God should be the Christian's panacea, their euphoria. It should cure all ills at a single stroke. And what an infinity there is in the thought of God. Nothing can approach in beauty to the idea of the true and living God. That there exists a being who is infinite in power and knowledge and goodness. And that that being cares for me with a perfect love as though I were the only man in existence. That he loved me before I was born and created me to enjoy him eternally and that he sent his son to suffer the agony of the cross to secure my eternal happiness? Huh. That surely must be the thought to end all sorrow. End quote. How does your thought of God affect the way you think? How does the thought of God affect the way you worry? 
How does the thought of God affect the things you, you think are bad? How does the thought of God, your view of God, affect the things that you complain about? This is what's on the Savior's mind as he closes the discourse that began back in the upper room. What is your thought of God the Father and your thought of God the Son? Again, Jesus is telling them, here's how to be secure. Here's how to live life with me, without me. Let's look at this final paragraph together. As we do, we're going to find four final provisions for peace. Jesus leaves his disciples and us four final provisions for peace. They're not experiencing the distress that they're going to, but he's giving them what they need for the next few hours, for the next few days, and certainly for the rest of their lives. The first is in verse 25. The first final provision is clarifying revelation. Clarifying revelation. Verse 25, These things I've spoken to you in figurative language, uh, language uh, figures of speech. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figure, figurative language, but I will tell you plainly, this is key, of the Father. This new dispensation after the cross and the resurrection is going to bring a new way of divine communication. He uses the word uh, paromia. It, it, it means figuratively, in figurative language, parabolically. What's he talking about? Well, what he is talking about is the challenge of communicating the parts of the gospel without the full message. I've spoken to you in, in figures of speech. I've given you pieces of the puzzle. You've tried to put it together, and you kind of see the mosaic, but you don't understand the full extent of the story because I haven't died yet. I haven't risen from the dead yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't come yet at Pentecost. You don't get the whole story yet. I've given you as much as you can possibly handle. They don't have the full message. Now, be careful because this is not the same thing that he said to the disciples in Mark about speaking in parables. Remember what he said in Mark 4, 33? With many such parables, he was speaking to the words of them so far as they were able to hear what he was saying. He did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. That's when he was publicly hiding his truth from the Jews who were against him and privately telling the disciples the meaning of the parables. That's not what's happening here. It's this different word. What he's saying here is you have part, but you haven't had the whole. The figurative language just means shadowy language. He's talking about their understanding of the gospel that is now black and white, but it'll be color in a few days. It's going to be shadows moving to substance from unclear to clear. Remember his assessment of the disciples back in verse 12? I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And that's true. Can you imagine him going over the intricacies of Romans 3 and 4 and 5 on justification by faith through substitution without them understanding that he was going to die and suffer and rise from the dead? They couldn't understand everything now. And you had to understand his, his sorrow, looking at them and thinking, I know what's going to happen when Judas brings the soldiers and just... Just a few hours. I know what's going to happen when they nail me to the tree. I know that all of you are going to run away and John alone will stand before me and maybe Peter is watching from afar, but you're all going to run. I also know that you're going to run home. He says that in a minute. You're going to run home. He will find them after the resurrection in Galilee fishing. 
It's interesting that the Father here is in focus. But remember the wonderful mixture we've been looking at in these chapters of Trinitarian truth that weaves its way through, throughout Jesus' final discourse? So is he wanting to show us the coming of the Spirit or the glory of the Father or the gospel of the Son? He says here, I want to show you the Father. This comes into clearer focus. If you'll turn over to Romans chapter 5, you can see this kind of come into clearer, sharper focus from being blurry, just adjusting the focus knob, and it's very clear. Romans chapter 5, remember, this is the further revelation that Jesus is saying the disciples couldn't handle at this point. Verse 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. We're talking about the Son. We're talking about the Gospel. Now instantly, without any transition, look where he jumps in verse 8. But God, the Father, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, back to the Son, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, shall we be saved from the wrath of God the Father through Him, God the Son. For if we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ the Son, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. You see, we're seeing the Son shows you the Father. Knowing the Father's love is manifest in the Son. It's all one and the same, tightly packaged together. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God the Father, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In other words, the access to understand and see, perceive, feel, experience, the love of God the Father is through the Son, but the Son says, look to the Father. And the Father says, you know me because of the Son. And the Spirit says, look to the Savior who is given by the Father. They're all wonderfully looking at the other. And that would make sense because the Trinity is one. One in three, three in one. I love reading through these chapters because I keep getting this wonderful uh, Trinitarian confusion. And I think that's good. Where you just, because it's, we don't have three gods. One manifests in three. And if you can figure out how to fully explain the Trinity, the pulpit is yours next week. I'll be glad to sit in the front row and take notes. In a wonderful and in a mysterious way, the way to understand God the Father is to understand God the Son. Look back at chapter 14, verse 9. Jesus said this so explicitly to Philip. Jesus said to Philip, Have I been with you so long and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen who? God the Father. How can you possibly say, we want to see the Father, show us the Father. Father was a synonym for the one true creator God. Hey, show us God. And Jesus says, you, you don't get the Trinity yet. You, you can't bear this yet. Some of the men he was speaking to would, would take great pains to write to qualify and explain the Trinity in further epistles. 
He says, you don't understand this yet. And don't miss this. What is so amazing to me here in this verse is that Jesus promises, look at this, he promises communication in the future after his death and resurrection. I will tell you plainly of the Father. He promises to speak from beyond the grave. How does he do that? Well, he spent you know, some time with them for multiple weeks after the resurrection. But I think ultimately that's canonized in Scripture. He tells us of the Father by the closing of the canon of the Word of God. We have a Bible now that summarizes and tells us all that we need to know about the Trinity and about God the Father through God the Son by the power of God the Spirit. It's the illumination of the Spirit turning the light on in our mind to see in the Bible that which is true, which we would think was false without Spirit turning that light on. What he's saying is revelation is going to clarify. Now, just for a moment, can you just pause and just grip your Bible a little tighter at where we are in the divine calendar? That we have all of God's revelation. He need not say anything else. Those words between these two covers are it. He did not have a speech impediment. He didn't say, whoops, forgot something. This is it. We stand in the full prophetic presence of what Jesus was saying here, which is, I'll clarify it later. And we have the clarity in our hands. First provision for peace is that clarifying revelation. We we know how to access peace because we have the full revelation of God. Secondly, Prayerful access. This is remarkable, again, inter-Trinitarianly, if I can say that. Prayerful access, another provision for peace. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. Now, whoa, this sounds a little odd. Wait, Jesus, haven't you said you can speak things in my name, you can ask things in my name, I'm going to give you access to the Father. Now, are you leaving us alone? Are you not going to... Intercede for us before the Father? Are you leaving us without your help? What is he saying here? I will not request of the Father on your behalf? We've already seen that access to God the Father in prayer is because of the Son in verse 24. But the key here is that Jesus is giving them, get this, full, unmitigated, unhindered access to God the Father because of the Son. When he taught them how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, he didn't say, Our Father, because of Jesus. He said, Our Father who art in heaven. And that's because of Jesus. What he's saying is, he, gee, this is the anchor beyond the veil in Hebrews. Jesus brings us into the Holy of Holies, puts our hand in the Father's, and because of his blood, says, This is your relationship. Our request Not on your behalf. You will have access to the Father because of me. And you say, well, well, how does that work without him, with him? What about the Spirit, the Trinity? You you mean to unscramble that egg? You can't. Now we have full access to the Father because of the Son. That's what he's saying. Why? Look at the next verse. For the Father himself loves you. 
Because you've loved me and have believed that I have come forth from the Father. Now we're back to that solidarity of the Trinity's interpersonal love. There are two things on which God the Father loves us. Two things on which His love for us is based. Why does God the Father love us? Why would He love us? It's right here. First, because of our love for His Son, Jesus. You want access to God the Father? Love His Son. What does that mean to love His Son? It means you understand Him, you care who He is, not was, but rose from the dead, sits at the right hand of God. Secondly, our belief in the identity of Jesus as God. That Jesus came forth from the Father. Now, I just can't help but steal a little bit of where we're going to be in a few weeks. Look over at chapter 17. Um, to me, this was one of those moments at dinner, parents, where you're praying and you look up and you look at your kids looking at each other and you always say, well, you weren't bowing your head and they say, how did you know that, right? You, you find yourself looking around in prayer because something was said that got your attention. Imagine sitting or standing with Jesus who now prays this, okay? Who... Who prays like this? 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Of all the prayer groups you've ever been in, has anyone come close to that? Lord, glorify me like it was before the world was created. Who prays like that? Well, Jesus is saying here, if you believe that, that's the criterion for God the Father expressing His love for you. There are two things we could all work on to stir our heart for God. Right here in this verse, that you could not be more practical than in this verse. Deepening our love for Jesus, that's why the Father loves us. How? By exploring the infinite tributaries, the dimensions of who Jesus is, what he did on the cross, what he's looking like in the, in the prophecies of the Old Testament, in the explanations of the gospel, in the theology of the epistles, and in the promise of his coming in the revelation. This book is about Christ, beginning to end. And the more we know of him, the more we love him. Those of you who are married can know this. I could easily use Jacob and Bethany as this illustration, but I won't embarrass them even though I already have. When you're falling in love, you want to know more and more about that person. What do they like? What do they like to eat? What do they like to drink? Do they like to write with a, a pencil, a ballpoint, a fountain pen? Do they like mushrooms? I mean, all sorts of questions. The answer to that should be no. All sorts of questions that... That you want, you want to know them because you care for them, and the more you care for them, the more you want to know about them because you have affection for them. God the Father loves us because we love His Son. So what are we doing to increase our love for His Son? The only thing we can do is increase our knowledge of the Son to see more and more of the excellencies and the beauties and the wonders of who He is. Second, by deepening our faith in His deity. And he says right here that I'm going back to the Father. I came forth from the Father. I came from heaven. 
Jesus Christ, according to Colossians chapter 1, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, created the world. He was on the throne in Isaiah chapter 6. John chapter 12 quotes Isaiah 6, the holy, holy, holy chapter. And Jesus says, that was me sitting on the throne. In this next chapter, we'll see the full bloom as Jesus prays rather, to be restored with the glory he shared with God the Father before the world began. These are mysteries that are just tasty morsels to the soul that loves Christ. I mean, just, just have a very real moment about the memory of Jesus. Think of him walking through the streets of Galilee, of Nazareth growing up, going around the Decapolis, going down into Jerusalem, through Jericho. He's walking past people. And he's God. And the most striking thing to me about God is his humility. What does Philippians 2 say? He didn't regard equality, a thing, uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped, literally shown off. If you were God, wouldn't you flex your muscle a little bit? Wouldn't you show off? Hey, I, I won the race yesterday. Really, I'm God. I mean, wouldn't that be the ultimate trump card in every conversation? He didn't brag about that. Why? Because they wouldn't have believed him, A, and secondly, because he wanted to show that the ultimate, most incredible manifestation of the glory of God was in his humility, back to Philippians 2, to die as a criminal and as a thief for the criminal's crucifixion on a cross. Think often about his deity. Think often that he came from the Father. Verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. How clear is that? Jesus returns to the fact of his departure. We get a great glimpse into what is attractive to Jesus about heaven if I hear one more time, not only from people around me, but from my own soul, what are we going to do in heaven? It doesn't matter what we're going to do, and we'll have a lot to do, and it'll be fun. Everything you've ever imagined that would be enjoyable will be that much infinitely bettered in heaven. But why does Jesus want to go back to heaven? Is it to climb the, the glorified half dome? Is it to, what, what does he want to do? He wants to be with his father. Heaven is attractive because God is attractive. And if God is not attractive, if God is not, can we use a word that we usually only relegate to babies? If God is not adorable, then heaven won't be looked forward to. This has been on his mind before. John eight forty two. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceed forth from and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but He sent me. John 16, 30. Now we know that you know all things. I have no need for any more question because we believe you came from God. The main point of this part of His instruction is to underline the fact that because we love Him, we believe in Him, we have prayerful access to God the Father, by which and for which Jesus is glorified. 
I've told you a few times about that conversation I had with one of my sons. It was one of the most wonderfully train-wrecking theological discussions I ever had, and it's, it's still ringing in my ears today. I'm driving on the old road in, in uh, Santa Clarita, and my son says to me, Dad, when you think of heaven, which member of the Trinity do you think of when you think of God? That's a great question. I'd like to ask you, when you think of God in heaven, and I'll never forget the conversation I had with him and myself that was just really odd. I said, well, I, I, think, of, I, think, of, um, I think of God the Son because you know, he's the Lamb, but actually he receives the scroll from the one on the throne, holy, 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 in, in Revelation 4. Revelation 5 receives a scroll from him. But that same scene happens in Isaiah 6. And in John 12, Jesus says, that was me. But then you have a distinction between the Father on the throne and the Son, the Lamb getting on it, and the Spirit comes. And I said, I, you probably need to ask your mom. <laughs> I... Those are conversations in our head that glorify God. Just where we get to the... And what we have to do, whether it's an issue like this, the Trinity, or an issue like election and man's choice, where you get up to this wall and you say, this is a wall of truth, of theology, and I can't get over it, it's too high, and I can't dig under it, it's too deep, and I can't go around it, it's too wide, and I just have to quit trying to bump my head against this wall and just back up and worship and just say, what a God, what a God. I was standing next to a friend of mine, and we were singing um, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise in the Shepherd's Conference one time. And I was really thinking through, and, and I asked him a question about the theology in the song. He asked me a question back. We were singing and talking theologically through that, that song, and finally, he just punches me. I mean, he corks me in the arm. He says, what a God! What a God! Yeah, what a punch! He got his point across. What a God! This whole thing should make us think, what a father who would send his son. What a son who would leave his spirit. A third provision he leaves us for peace is in verses 29 to 32. Sustaining grace. Sustaining grace. There's not much to say about this. His disciples said, lo, eureka, in other words. Now we are, you're speaking plainly and are not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things. We have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Now this is, this is really encouraging and really discouraging at the same time. It's really encouraging that they say, we believe, we get it, that you came from God. A plus. We know that you know all things. A plus. But now we understand you totally. Not going to grade that till Sunday when he rises from the dead. At the end of the discourse, at least the disciples express the fact that they, they need to get it, they want to get it, and they think they do. But the next few hours would prove that even though they may have understood and gotten it, okay, you're the son of the living God. Okay, you're the Messiah. Okay, you're the one who was sent from God. Okay, you came from God, you're going back to God. But now you're dead and you've gone back to God. Where where does that leave us? I love Jesus' answer. 
Do you, and the Greek is emphatic, do you now, now you get it? Now you believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come, literally, and is. In other words, we are at that hour. It's going to happen in just, just a matter of moments when we cross the Kidron Valley for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet, I'm not alone because the Father is with me. What's going to happen? The disciples are so brave. Remember Peter? I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. No way. They can't. There's nothing going to rip me from you. And he says, really? You're, you're, you're going to deny me three times tonight. Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. Matthew 26, 31. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away of me because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. He's quoting Zechariah 13.7. They would all leave him, but he wouldn't be alone. He makes sure to add the footnote. He spent three chapters describing, I am in solidarity with the Father and he with me and we with the Spirit. Here's what I find amazing about the, these couple of verses, though. In their failure, God's grace was still at work in their faith, and their faith would eventually come through. This is super encouraging to me. Think about what happened to those men that night. They all ran for their lives. Peter openly says he knows nothing of Jesus even uses profanity to prove he's not morally in line with Jesus, rejects any, any association with Christ. And yet, these are the men who God would use to rock the world. You know what that tells me? You have a God who doesn't just give second chances. You have a God whose grace sustains through multiple failures. The great difference between what Peter did and what Judas did. Peter failed, but he was broken afterwards. Remember what it says? He, the last time he said that, Jesus was walking through the courtyard, and he met eyes with Jesus, and he was what? Broken, deeply sorrowful. Judas was not sorrowful because of what he had done to the Savior. He was sorrowful because of what it had done to him. God's sustaining grace would provide what we find in verse 33, and that's peace. The fourth final provision for peace Verse 33, exemplified courage. Obviously, the exemplified courage of Jesus. These things I have spoken to you so that in me, if you underline things in your Bible, that is an underlined, circleable, highlightable moment. In me, you may have peace. We so often want to get peace without the phrase, in me, in Christ. In the world, here's the contrast, in me there's peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take courage. Now this is interesting. He says the solution for peace is courage, which means the, the solution for trouble is courage. This means that at the heart of all lack of peace is a lack of courage to believe what God has given us. 
I've overcome the world. This word overcome must have made a huge impact and impression on John. It's really remarkable. John uses this word six times in 1 John, and he uses the word overcome 16 times in his book of Revelation. Revelation 3, 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also have overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. His overcoming is transferred into our overcoming. His courage is transferred into our courage. His peace is transferred into our peace. My peace I leave with you. Not generic peace, not an absence of trouble. My peace. Now think about this. His peace was defined in the fact that he was about to be scourged and beaten and crucified. Yet he would have peace. Don't think that the disciples did not remember the disposition and attitude of Jesus hours before his death in the days, months, weeks, and years later. John records this just remarkably so that Jesus is giving all of his care to the disciples. And he's moments away from horrific physical horror. He says, by the way, in the world, you'll have tribulation. What is the world? John defines the world in 1 John 2, uh, 14 to 16. In the world, it's three things. Lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. That's what the world offers. That's what the world tempts us with. And that's what the world uses against us. Jesus overcame the world. Go back to Matthew chapter 4. What did he do in the three temptations? He overcame the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Satan tempted him in those three categories, and he overcame. Have peace, I've overcome the world. Can't help but go to Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Will a lack of peace separate us from Christ? No, verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly, here's our word again, conquer through Him who loved us. All of our peace is anchored in Jesus' work and His example of overcoming Himself. In fact, verse 33 gives the summary purpose for the whole section and the whole farewell discourse. These things I've spoken to you. Is that this last paragraph? Well, yes, it is, but I think it extends all the way back to the upper room. I've told you all of these things so you'll experience peace. Now, can we have a, a practical moment for where we live? We know what happened to the disciples. They had a horrific lack of peace for the next 48, 60 hours and into the next week until they got back up to Galilee and Jesus finds them huddled together in a room and finds some out fishing. We saw how that ended. What about us? Whenever there is the threat of loss, fearful anxiety, problems, tribulations, troubles, those things come and grip our hearts pretty tightly. In fact, we fear the loss of anything that we believe will bring us happiness, comfort, joy, or pleasure. We are afraid to lose those inputs that give us pleasure and peace. We can even think, category, categorize it like losing a loved one, losing our health, losing money and possessions, security, control of things. All of these things can make us feel anxious, just like they did the disciples in this hour and in the coming one. 
All of these fears can be traced to a theological absence. The absence of confidence in God's sufficiency where he said, in his son, my peace I leave with you. No evil, no threat can cause us to be forsaken by God. That's what Romans just told us. So what do you do when peace starts slipping out of your mind? What do you do when anxiety begins to threaten your heart? I can promise it probably wasn't as advanced as what the disciples were experiencing on this night, but the provision that Jesus gave them, he also leaves for us. Puritan preacher Horatius Bonner isolated the real issue when he wrote, we just don't get the sovereignty of God in those moments. Man's dislike at God's sovereignty arises from man's suspicion of God's heart. We just think God doesn't get it. He must be over dealing with Afghanistan and Iran and Israel or Canada, but he's not here dealing with us. Are we suspicious of God's heart? Listen, God hasn't distanced himself from the problem of evil or our troubles. He faced it head on in the death of his son on Calvary. Remember John 19, verse 11, where Pilate says, Don't you know I have the authority to let you go, Jesus? And Jesus says, No, no, no. You would have no authority over me unless it had been granted to you from above. If God was in charge, listen, if God was in charge of every possible nuance, every possibility to make sure that Jesus was crucified, his son died as a substitute for sinners, if he was in charge of that, you can bet he's in charge of everything we perceive as evil, everything that brings us anxiety. We just get nervous, anxious about things that To say they don't matter is the understatement. They won't won't matter next week, much less now. So how do we get this peace? We go back to the cross. We go to the gospel. What does God offer us in Christ? Is there anything better? No. Can anything worse happen to us than death? No. What will that do? Bring us into his presence. We've got life and death conquered in the cross. That's called good what? News. How's your peace? Can I go back to Morris Roberts, that place we started? He says this. The degree of a Christian's peace of mind depends. Now stop right there. Anytime a theologian says something like that, I'm listening. The degree of a Christian's peace of mind depends, what's he going to say? Depends upon his spiritual ability to interpose the thought of God between himself and his anxiety. Isn't that a good picture? Our peace is utterly dependent on our ability in the moment of tribulation and trouble to put the thought of God between us and that which gives us anxiety. And so often we have our anxiety in front of us and God is way out in the distance. Dr. Roberts says, no, no, no. 
Let the thought of God be the filter through which we interpret every potential downfall, trouble, anxiety, lack of peace. Here's the catch. Okay, Eye contact for a second. Ready? Here's the catch. You will not and you cannot have that kind of peace unless your eternal security has been made picture perfectly clear because you had faith, expressed faith, put your belief in and love toward God's Son, the Lord Jesus. I mean, we just read it in Romans 8. God the Father demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, His Son, died for the wicked, sinful, ungodly, wrathful enemies like us. He loves differently than us. We, we love our friends. We even love a lot of friends more than other friends. We even don't lose, love some people who kind of are our friends. God's love is different for us. Totally different from us. We would dive on the grenade, some people would, for the good guy in the good situation who's on our team and on our side. Point of Romans 8, Romans 5, is that God dove on the grenade for his enemies. He died in the place, Jesus died in the place of absorbing the full, furious, hellish, hell-deserving wrath of God. He died and absorbed in the place of those who had believed. What kind of fool would say no to forgiveness of sins? What kind of fool would say no to eternity with God in heaven? What kind of fool would say no to the death of God in Christ in our, on our behalf? What fool says no to that? I hope you're not that fool. In a few moments, we're going to dismiss, and prayer room will be open to my right through that door. Bob and Kathy, men and women who would love to talk to you about your questions, our church, state of your soul. We would love to interact with you about that. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to make your way down front, and we'd love to interact with you about that. Would you stand together? Our Father, we have come to the end of your instruction and now beginning in the next passage we'll come to eavesdropping on your prayer between you and your Son. We are humbled. Lord, show us your greatness and because of that, help us to see the misery of our sins. Pray for those who are asking questions, struggling in their heart, that you would bring them to our prayer room to be able to see what you say in your word to answer life's most difficult dilemmas and that peace would be found in you, from you, because of you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit Mission Road Bible Church dot com.